bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Now, before I give you the rundown of today's lineup, I've got to take a minute to thank some of our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, located in Des Moines' Sherman Hill neighborhood. That's my grocery store. And the cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. Cafe orders are also available using Gateway's takeout service. And since it is that time of the year where you might be thinking about holiday gifts, why not a, gift, a Gateway gift card or two or three? Because for every $50 gift card you buy, you get an additional $10 gift card for yourself. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, folks, on today's program, we talk about President Donald Trump filling the swamp as he prepares for his exit. We also talk with Joe Henry with the League of United Latin American Citizens about Tyson managers at a pork processing plant in Waterloo placing bets on how many workers would get the coronavirus. Yeah, kind of incredible. Speaking of the coronavirus, we also talk with Dr. Mark Allen Derry, a New Orleans infectious disease physician, about the surge, which is especially prominent, of course, in the upper Midwest. Finally, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm joins us as we talk about uh, beef. Yeah, where's the beef? Well, it depends on which Betty Crocker you ask. But first, uh, we kick off our program, as we do each week, with our climate update. So uh, in Guatemala and all across Central America, you have probably heard the news, I hope you have, that people, cities, towns, crops are just devastated by these uh, back-to-back hurricanes. Again, most the most um, severe hurricane season ever. And just this month, two hurricanes, both Category 4 storms, Hurricanes Ada and Iota, displaced millions of people, and they killed hundreds. And the, the, the numbers aren't in yet. We're still, I mean, again, they had one hurricane right on top of another. They hadn't even finished cleaning up or assessing the damage. And they've got two now. Homes are destroyed, um, roads destroyed, bridges have been washed away. And of course, it's harvest time and entire fields of crops have been destroyed. The estimate is that just in Honduras and Nicaragua, uh, damage to crops is about 210 million U.S. dollars. And I'm going to bet that's going to go way up by the time they get done assessing everything. And livestock in those two countries, again, in Honduras and Nicaragua, losses are tentatively uh, estimated at around 100 million U.S. dollars. So um, according to the United, Nation, United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, uh, on their website, they're called OCHA for short, not to be mistaken for OSHA, OCHA writes that, quote, in the midst of a record-breaking Atlantic hurricane season, um, that ADA struck Central America just as the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement became official could not be more tragically ironic. You know, it, just, it, it should be obvious to everyone that the worst storm season on record in the Atlantic, 
I mean, by 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 I think by a, by a factor of two storms. And again, the the previous worst year was two thousand five, but you know, and and you get those off years where it's not so bad. I mean, for example, Florida, Florida totally dodged the bullet this year. Not so much the uh, Gulf Coast, and certainly not Central America. But it's very, very clear that as the climate warms, as the oceans warm, that, that heat becomes fuel for these storms. And so, you know, again, I think we're only beginning to reckon with the, the human uh, impact of the two storms in Central America. One thing for, is absolutely certain. Because, again, because of villages destroyed, crops destroyed, infrastructure destroyed, People have, in order to survive, in order to just to be able to feed themselves and their families, expect for more immigration to the U.S. There's no doubt about it. We're going to see a lot more Central American immigration immigration to the U.S. And it'll be, hopefully, we'll see how the Biden-Harris administration responds. Hopefully, it'll be favorable. Um, you know, there's always so much to talk about in terms of climate, but I just pulled a few stories out here, folks. Um, you know, maybe one way to appeal to Americans on climate is to uh, kind of try to connect with their sweet tooth. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, no, there's no food that we love better than sugar, right? And uh, I don't know about you, but among sugars, my favorite, you might have guessed honey, wrong, maple syrup. I love maple syrup. Uh, and now the industry is, um, you know, again, most of uh, Canada, I think like 90% of the exported syrup comes from Canada with a, a thin band of, of a production across the northern U.S. being second. But the maple syrup industry, and of course maple trees in general, are in, uh, in big trouble because uh, rising temperatures, not only do they jeopardize the overall well-being of the trees, but they threaten their reproductive cycles and also their ability to produce sap. Now, I remember um, I lived in Vermont for two years, and I used to ski out into the Green, Mount, Green Mountains on cross-country skiing, and I would go places no other normal student at my college would go, and I would find, every once in a while, I'd run into a sugar bush. A sugar bush is a maple syrup, a maple tree stand that is being tapped for syrup, and it was just the most beautiful thing to, to span across this, uh, this field, this forest of maple trees being tapped, and I remember... I guess this is probably okay. I mean, it takes, what, 40 gallons of syrup, of sap rather, to make one gallon of syrup. I would occasionally take a small sip from one of those buckets. And dang, that was good. It was just like water, but with a very, very slight hint of maple. Nice. I also recall um, actually making syrup in Wisconsin with um, when I lived on the uh, Ojibwe reservation at Redcliffe. Um, me and Mike Nuago. Uh, old, an old uh, native man there who took me out to learn various things. Um, we learned how to make syrup, and uh, <laughs> that was an interesting practice because it was very grassroots, shall we say. Uh, the uh, the vat was out in the forest. The uh, wood was all the wood to burn all that uh, sap down was out in the forest as well, of course. And um, because um, when wood burns, it puts up ash. A lot of that ash came down in the syrup. So when you took your jar of syrup home. At the very end of the consumption of that jar, you would find a nice thick layer of wood ash on the bottom. Did me no harm. Well, beyond all the, those personal reflections, I can tell you, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot, I, there's a lot I know about maple syrup. But I learned something this week that I didn't know, and that is that maples rely on snow to protect their roots from freezing. I guess that makes sense. But of course, with snowfall expected to decrease, that could be a big problem. 
And again, you know, if, if climate is going to affect one species in this way, it's going to affect everybody, every species, every plant, every animal, every person. Okay, so, so much more I could talk about, but uh, this one is interesting to me. Um, Ian Williams, he's a professor of applied science, and Alice Brock, she's a PhD candidate in environmental science. They're both at the University of Southampton in Great Britain. Re they recently uh, released a study of which soft drink containers were most damaging to the environment. I did not guess correctly. Maybe you would not either. These are the top five in reverse order, meaning the worst, the worst of the five is glass bottles. I was surprised, but I guess it makes sense because glass, to make glass, you, that uses the most natural resources and the most energy. Of course, they're also very heavy, so it takes more fossil fuels to transport them. And then, you know, I mean, the measurement between glass and aluminum, glass makes 95% larger contribution to global warming than aluminum. That is astounding. Okay, second from the bottom, after glass, recycled glass. <laughs> Everybody's about recycling, but recycling uses a lot of energy. The better thing, of course, is to take that glass bottle and use it again without recycling it. Third, plastic bottles. So, I mean, we're all all about getting rid of plastic, but, um, and plastic, uh, you know, the problem is it breaks into harmful microparticles that pollute land and sea. And right now, of course, 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic are floating in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Uh, that weight, the weight of those, actually there's two different cycles where it's floating. The estimated weight of that garbage patch is 80,000 tons. So second from the uh, top, aluminum cans. Again, uh, manufacturing consumes less energy and resources than glass or plastic. Cans are lighter than glass, and they aren't made from fossil fuels like plastic. They're made from aluminum, but they're not perfect because making them involves refining bauxite ore, which is a heavy metal, and that threatens the health of people and wildlife who live near the mines. Of course, the, uh, the best top of the list in terms of, um, of uh, you know, uh, soft drink containers, recycled aluminum cans. Okay, that's a no-brainer. So... Um, <laughs> My advice is to avoid soft drinks because not only are they um, <laughs> they're coming in containers that are that are environmentally damaging, but they're damaging your health. I mean, there is nothing good about a soft drink. There's so many better things to drink out there, so many. But the author's advice is to um, again phase out single-use packaging entirely and use reusable containers. That makes a lot of sense. So you know, the problem is you're not going to go to a store and say, "Hey, could I fill up my." Um, my reusable container with a Coke? No, they're not going to do that. So again, I think uh, realistically, your best bet is to try to wean yourself of, of soft drinks. They are bad for you. They are bad for the planet. But again, if you must, apparently aluminum ones are better than plastic. And plastic, believe it or not, are better than glass. Hey, folks, uh, this is Ed Fallon with you here on the Fallon Forum. Okay, hey, when we come back from a short break, uh, Joe Henry is going to join us. We're going to talk about Tyson managers betting on workers getting COVID. That sounds too weird to be true, but unfortunately it is. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. 
Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Again, thanks to the local businesses who help make this program possible. Thank you to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store, and the cafe is open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. Cafe orders are also available using Gateway's takeout service, and it's that time of the year where you might be thinking about holiday gifts. Why not a gateway gift card, or two, or three? Because for every $50 gift card you buy, you get an additional $10 gift card for yourself. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located in downtown Des Moines. Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Findlay, and Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can catch many of the performances on Noche's live stream, and the owners have done a great job at making sure their setup works in protecting visitors, musicians, and staff from COVID-19. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, welcome back to the program, and I would like to welcome to the show Joe Henry. He's the political director for LULAC. That's the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, Iowa. Joe, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thank you, Ed. Okay, so... um. It's disturbing news uh, the other day that there were managers at a Tyson pork processing facility in Waterloo who were wagering on how many workers would come down with COVID. Do I have, do I have that right? That almost seems too uh, uh, bizarre to believe. You know what? It, it is true, and it, it's, it's not surprising. We know that... Uh, Racism has been part and partial of the meatpacking industry for several decades now. Um, so not only do we have the virus spreading in these plants, but we have racist behavior. Um, and, you know, clearly it, it seems to be a top-down type of thing with management, the exploitation of workers, as it's just been going on throughout this company, Tyson. And we know that 500,000 workers work in meatpacking across the country. So a terrible situation. It needs to be, it needs to be taken on. We hope that uh, the lawsuit uh, prevails in state court. And this isn't the first uh, COVID-related uh, problem we've had with Tyson this year, and, and there are some other meatpacking plants as well. But uh, we had uh, um, managers who were failing to tell the public what was going on with infection rates among their workers, and as a result, and in part because of horrible working conditions. We had a huge spike in the number of uh, workers infected. This is back in March and April. 
Yes, I mean, here in Iowa, we've had 10 meatpacking workers die. Half of them have been from the Tyson plants in Iowa. And then uh, the majority of those workers have been Latino. Um, and um, when we look at what has happened nationally, uh, over 40,000 of these workers have been infected. Over 200 have died wow. across the country, probably more, uh, but we don't know due to the lack of reporting from state governments sure. such as Iowa that, that does not report to uh, National OSHA or the CDC on those who have died at these facilities. We only find this out when it hits the local newspapers. So how did we find out that these two man it was the two managers, I believe, who were placing these bets? Well, it's, you know, uh, based upon uh, what we have uh, seen in the media and, and just hearing from what the attorneys have stated, uh, this was done during depositions. Uh, this was noted uh, when supervisors were being deposed that this uh, bidding had occurred. So uh, it seems to be, Ed, in their own words that they did this, but I guess we're going to find out more once this uh, goes to court and uh, right now it's stuck in federal court and uh, the uh, the plaintiffs uh, the attorneys are arguing that uh, this should be heard in state court and this uh, and when you, you when you say workers were or managers were deposed you're referring to the, dep the deposition that occurred during a, a lawsuit that was filed earlier correct well, not quite sure. I'm just uh, repeating what I have already read, that okay. depositions were put forth at this facility with management, uh, and it, it was found out during those depositions when they were asked what had happened at the plant on a number of different things. That's what I'm guesstimating at this now, point. Now, Tyson's response has been to at least indicate you know, dissatisfaction with their workers. They, they, I can't, I can't remember the exact language now, but I know they spoke out, you know, critically of right. the two managers. They distanced themselves. Yes. Right, and then they went on to hire Eric Holder, the former, uh, former they Obama, <laughs> Obama. What yeah. was he, Chief? Uh, um, the Attorney General. Attorney General under Obama. For the country. Yeah, yeah, and they hired him. Tyson has hired him. Yeah, the law firm, and uh, he he comes with a law firm, so. So that's a good move. They have an independent investigation of that. But, you know, our sense of this is, you know, having worked with meatpacking workers over the last five years, those of us here in LULAC, LULAC, Iowa, is that this uh, treatment of workers has been fueled by uh, racist behavior, which has demeaned workers, which has viewed workers as just uh, part of the process of slaughtering meat, um, uh, hogs, livestock, uh, you know, and we have filed complaints against uh, other meatpacking plants here in Iowa, such as GBS and Smithfield. And we have received information from the workers on how they were, were treated, how they were treated in the workplace. And based upon that treatment, clearly uh, racist behavior was, was, uh, was part and partial have, of what happened in the past. Have you noticed any improvement in working conditions as a, as a result of those uh, inquiries? We've noticed some. I mean, uh, workers are being given face masks, they're being given uh, temperature checks, but the speed of work still continues at a high pitch. Can you imagine wearing a mask and jogging for eight hours? 
uh, it's not going to work. So people are still getting sick. They're not getting the distance between workers as required or suggested by OSHA in the CDC. So uh, people are still dying. Like I said earlier, we had a meatpacker who died uh, two weeks ago at GPS in Marshalltown. And and clearly uh, that would indicate that not enough is being done. We're not having uh, mandatory checks of the of whether or not workers are infected on a regular basis. There's random testing that is being done. That is not enough. We feel that the virus is spreading within these facilities because there is really no ventilation in these plants for the sole purpose of just the way that they were built to process meat as quickly as possible. Everything is confined and people, workers are boxed in. So, one, so it's, it's dangerous. So one, one concern, Joe, is that, uh, I mean, President Trump is doing all sorts of damage on the way out the door. We spoke about this in the last segment. One thing I didn't speak about, but I want to mention to you, is um, the rumors of a proposal, again, coming from the White House, to allow for uh, increased speed along on the slaughterhouse line. Now, I, I, I can't imagine how anybody would think that was a good idea. I know. It's terrible to think that that would be allowed. And this was something that was brought up in 2016 under the Obama administration. Fortunately, they stopped that from happening. But at the same time, they should have reduced the line speed. The speed of work in those in, in that environment on the shop floor has always been too fast for workers. Lots of injuries, damages, carpal tunnel, uh, workers not being permitted to take uh, adequate time for rest. Uh, it's all terrible. Now, what in regards to that rumor, we've also heard that uh, they will be denied that in the next administration. So what we will probably see is a speed up of work before the next administration takes over. And then it is our hope, but we're not going to let hope be the only thing uh, going. We're going to make sure uh, through public pressure that the speed of work is reduced, the space between workers is provided, and safety is provided to these workers, even though it is difficult with the way that these operations are set up. Yeah. So um, that, that I, I hope you're right on that. I hope, first of all, I hope, I hope President Trump doesn't do that. And I hope if he does, Joe Biden is on it right away. Uh, once he is uh, sworn in. So um, a quick, uh, we have just a couple minutes left here, but I know we spoke uh, on this program back in May about the uh, the boycott of Tyson and other meatpacker meat products and encouraging people to shift to getting their meat from local sources. Is there any, you have any kind of an update on that, Joe? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, there is a boycott. There is a consumer boycott against what we call big meat, uh, the corporate processing of meat. Uh, two different coalitions have been set up. One is called boycottmeat.com, and then the other one is set up with uh, with farmers, livestock farmers, grain farmers, uh, environmentalists. So the information is getting out there. Uh, there is a lot of promotion of that going on. Not enough has been done yet. It takes time to build these consumer boycotts. But if people can go to boycottme.com, they're going to be able to kind of review all the different things that we have done with environmentalists, with uh, animal rights activists, consumer groups, 
uh, uh, worker right groups. And then, we again, we have the other coalition set up with livestock farmers, and we're working with that group, too. All right. Hey, Joe, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. If folks want to learn more about your work, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you and with LULAC? Well, first of all, boycottmeat.com. Okay, boycottmeat.com, sure. And the other one is iowalatinos.org. iowalatinos.org. All right, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking to Joe Henry. When we come back from a short break, uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry is going to join us. Uh, He's an infectious disease physician, and we're going to be talking about the recent surge in coronavirus cases back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Finley. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Progressive Voices from America's Heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our local business partners and nonprofits, including Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carry-out. More information at hawktables. Thanks also to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to push for change. And you can learn more at boldiowa.com. Okay, so hey, I'm I'm delighted to have Dr. Mark Allen Derry joining us again on the program. Mark Allen is an infectious disease physician in New Orleans, and he operates a podcast called COVID Noise Filter. Mark Allen, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Ed. And you must be busy as all heck. <laughs> you know, just in the last two weeks or so, things were just starting to slow down for me, uh, starting in April. And uh, now, of course, we're seeing this nationwide uptick in cases that we're feeling here in Louisiana as well. So things are starting to get busy for me again. And, of course, uh, in terms of hotspots, um, Iowa leading the nation. Uh, yes, I just uh, yeah. This morning I had a look at your at your maps. I think hospitalizations up by like um, I think it was mortalities up almost by ninety yeah. percent. Uh, the cases are just starting. If you look at the New York Times maps, it looks like the cases peaked maybe about two or three days ago and are just starting to decline right now. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know what we're seeing through the Midwest and the North Midwest states, especially through some of these states where 
uh, the governors were um, slow to uh, embrace these non-pharmacological interventions or have just out and out rejected them altogether, we're starting to see, especially when you look at the Dakotas as well, you're seeing a, a, a huge increase in, uh, in cases uh, as well as with cases comes mortality. Yeah. And I, I think there is growing understanding that our governor here in Iowa has managed this very, very badly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just had a message this morning from a worker at an Iowa healthcare facility. It's uh, it's almost, it's kind of heart-wrenching, actually. I'll, I'll read the quote to you. Uh, quote, uh, we are fighting a battle that we just can't win here. No matter what we do, no matter how careful we are, I know without a shadow of a doubt that all our people will get this thing. It has taken on a life of its own. A third of our people have COVID and half of our staff has it. We are drowning. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I mean, this is what we're seeing throughout the whole country. Uh, and that's largely due to the fact that that the um, there has been no centralized leadership here. Uh, you know, the plan of action has largely been inaction. And so what has happened is that you have 50 different governors in 50 different states all doing their own unique plan and action, and you have over 2,500 health departments in cities and uh, uh, all over the country, and they're all doing their own thing. And, and I know that because I'm part of the health department here, and I'm, I'm on the task force advising the health department and the mayor what to do, and we're just doing it as we're going along with very little leadership. Typically, we would look toward the CDC. Typically, we would look toward, uh, uh, you know, the, the central government that would help us, you know, with, with direction should we go what should we consider to be when should we open schools when should we close schools when you know all of the decisions are typically made in one location oftentimes the cdc and then it gets disseminated throughout the country and we're all operating from the same perspective and and of course due to the uh, fact that there was no action again the plan of action was inaction and as a result of that it was only a matter of time that we would see this huge exponential spread. And right now what we're going through, we're going to look back to the days of today and about six or seven weeks and say, oh, remember when? I wish we could go back to that. Because what we, we're we going to see that Thanksgiving is going to be a national super spreading event. It's going to then uh, we're not going to really see it crest until Christmas, which will then be another super spreading event. So you, you're going to see a huge uptick of cases come the end of December from what happened, uh, what's going to happen this week, and you're going to get more cases. And so come the end of January, that's when you're going to really see this uh, really get really, really bad. And when you hear folks like Dr. Fauci refer to things like being a dark winter, this is what Dr. Fauci is referring to. Right. And we had, on, we had you on this program back in March when uh, New Orleans, and in particular, was hit really hard. And, uh, and you and Fauci and a bunch of other people who know their stuff were saying, you know, this is going to get really particularly bad once the cold weather hits again, and you're exactly right. Uh, you know, you know, Dr. Charles Goldman, of course, um, of course. who's been tracking uh, the uh, virus here in in Iowa. Again, I'll read you a quote from from Charles. You can give me your feedback on it. He says, "Quote: If you assume COVID prevalence is five times higher than the quoted numbers, just five people gathering in one place, Thanksgiving, for example, uh, five people in one place runs a 25% risk that one of them has COVID." If 10 people gather, you're at a 50% chance that one of those 10 is infected. This is science, not wishful thinking. It's also why Americans need to stop whining about missing out on Thanksgiving. 
or Christmas or not getting to see Santa Claus at the mall or some Bass Pro Shop. Uh, yeah, Charles always has to add a little bit of a flair to it. But <laughs> you, I, you, you think he's, uh, he's right about that? I, I, don't, I don't think he's being hyperbolic at all. I, I would agree with his assessment. In fact, the only place that I would slightly disagree is that I think the actual prevalence is about 10%. I, I said it even higher. Uh, the, the WHO uh, had, had come out about six weeks ago and made the statement that they think the global prevalence is about 10%. So if we are operating at 7.6 billion uh, people or 770 billion people, uh, what we're really looking at is probably 770 million people with it globally. globally. And right now... I, yeah, and if you look at the U.S., there's been several studies. There was one that was done that was quite elegant in which they looked at the blood from people that are in, have hemodialysis. Now, people need to get hemodialysis every three days, and so those are folks that are really reliable to get blood work from. And what they did is they looked at their blood where they were looking at their antibodies particularly, and they found that they had a prevalence of about 8%. But when you because it's a unique population, they standardized it by – by race and by ethnicity and by uh, sex. And what they found out that it was closer to 10% of the U.S. is, is likely to have had COVID already. So that would put us somewhere uh, operating at 330 million, so about 33 million cases. And right now, I think we're at like 12 or 13 million that's documented. Yeah. So we know it's a significant undercount. But Charles, I agree with Charles 100%. So is there is there a light at the end of this tunnel? I mean, right now, uh, you know, three different companies have announced a vaccine, and we're also looking at. Um, I mean, maybe we did. Maybe maybe I'm interested in hear how you think about this. But herd immunity with enough people developing the, you know, and being infected by the virus, and most of them living, uh, surviving, and most of them developing some kind of immunity. Are we to the point between vaccine and herd immunity that maybe once we come out of this winter? Uh, we'll be looking at the backside of this uh, virus that it won't. It, we maybe will return to a more normal year starting in the spring. Is that is that too much to hope for? I think that's a little too optimistic. Um, if we are operating from a perspective of possibly that we're looking at. 10% of the country has been already infected with the virus. Uh, you know, herd immunity is anywhere between, you know, let's be conservative and say 70%. So, the, you know, and that's what we've already dealt with, you know, over a quarter million people dying. If we were to, you know, and that's a 10%, think about for every 10%, it's another quarter of a million people dying. If we were to allow this to transmit through the communities, um, as we've heard some people in the administration talk about, it would be untenable. And plus, when we use the word herd immunity, let's be clear, the word herd immunity was developed to talk about vaccinations. Uh, it was never it was never developed to talk about how a virus is going to naturally uh, 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 be distributed through a population. Uh, but that being said, I, I think that what is what we need to consider is that that the vaccine itself will be likely available to the general community probably sometime in summer, maybe sometime in fall. Um, we don't know, but that, that's what I would kind of guesstimate at this point. And then by the time it's going to take to vaccinate everybody, um, it's just going to be a very – this is going to be the largest logistic uh, uh, distribution process that this country's ever engaged in. But do you, really so think, I, do you really think everybody will be vaccinated? I mean, some people won't want to be. Some people may not need to be. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're looking at 60, 70, 80 percent of the population, I think that when push comes to shove, you're going to get a lot. You, it's one thing to be able to say right now, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated. But it's another thing to say once you're seeing people lining up, people are doing well and you're seeing these efficacy rates of 90 percent. I have a feeling people are going to probably change their minds right. but, and they're going to go. And they're going but, to get but, but there's already talk about having the vaccine available in mid-December. So you, you, you mentioned not till the summer, but it sounds like there may be uh, a reliable and safe fast track for much sooner than that. Well, I mean, so, let, so let's talk about what we, what we know. So what we know is that they're talking about possibly 40 million uh, doses by the end of the year. So because it's a double, it's a dual, the vaccine, you need two of them. So that really comes down to 20 million gotcha. actual right and then those are going to be distributed initially uh, by uh, frontline workers uh, people like myself uh, and as well as uh, um, people at highest risk the elderly those that are vulnerable from uh, 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 from communities that have been uh, disproportionately impacted one of the things I will say this one of the good news that we're you know I, I will say I'm going to give you a couple of pieces of good news one is that um, that every single person in every time, I have been in meetings or have read or have talked to uh, anybody about vaccine. The first thing that comes out of almost uh, uh, in every conversation is there has to be equitable distribution of this virus, uh, this vaccine. There has to be equitable distribution of this vaccine. So that's, that's the first time I've ever really heard that in healthcare. And, and in my, you know, as you know, at my professional uh, research is in uh, is health inequities. And so for the first time in my 25 year career, am I hearing people talk about the the need for equitable distribution of virus? So that's some good news uh, for vaccine. Rather, yeah. And that's some good news. Yeah. That's the second. Oh, go ahead. And the second good news is I think that this time next year, there's going to be a little bit more of a uh, I think that people will be able to to join their families for New Year's, uh, you know, those people who are going to be vaccinated. So, like, let's say my whole family gets vaccinated. I would feel comfortable going home to California to, to see my family uh, uh, to to enjoy Thanksgiving. Day. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I really appreciate you joining us, uh, Mark Allen. Folks, we've been talking to Dr. Mark Allen Derry. He's an infectious disease physician in New Orleans. He also operates a podcast called COVID Noise Filter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Going to take a short break here back in a minute as we talk about how Donald Trump is filling the swamp as he prepares for his exit. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 
bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. I'd like to thank uh, some of our other local business sponsors and nonprofit sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for large and small animals alike. You can find out more information about her veterinary services at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or you can call 515-232-8766. That's 515-232-8766. Support for this program also provided by Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents, and you can learn more at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so uh, Donald Trump is a sore loser. Um, I think we can say that with all objectivity. More and more Republicans are saying that. Uh, we got to give a little uh, bit of a pat on the uh, back to Fox News, because, again, even though they've got Hannity and Ingraham, and to some extent Tucker Carlson, less so, uh, you know, still continuing to sing the president's praise and to try to, uh, try to make, you know, make the argument that, yes, the election was rigged, Fox News called the election for Biden, and now more and more key Republican leaders, key business leaders, key world leaders, notice that, by the way, that Vladimir Putin is missing from that list of key world leaders, you know, more and more are coming out and saying, look, um, Donald, you lost, move on, in various, uh, various ways. Some are saying it much uh, more strong language than that, and some are hedging their bets a bit. But anyway, um, a lot of concern right now because Donald Trump appears to be he, he appears to be grappling with the reality that he lost and his response increasingly is I mean since they're losing all these court cases and since it doesn't look like they're going to be able to convince state legislatures to not certify the results and it does not look like they're going to be able to go to the Supreme Court instead what Doc, Donald Trump's exit strategy involves trying to do as much damage as possible. Uh, I, mean, I mean, some of it is just outright vengeful stuff, and some of it is, is payback to his buddies, especially in big oil. So, I mean, and, and probably, I, I don't know, how do, you, how do you quantify which is the worst thing he's doing? The way that he is, uh, is dealing with the election itself, uh, again, it's out of the 71 million people or so who voted for Trump, I don't know, I mean, the, the, there's a high percentage that believe the election was rigged. And of course, the more he hammers away at that, the more they're going to agree. And that, you know, that, that's not just a problem in the immediate present. That's a problem down the road. You know, if more and more people believe that the, America's election system is failed, uh, then you, when, when you don't have the you know, a basic confidence in your democracy, uh, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. I don't know where that leads, but again, it's it, it's sowing the seeds of doubt about the viability and the validity of our system, and that's dangerous. Also dangerous, President Trump's firings at the Pentagon, firing uh, of the, uh, the Secretary of Defense. I mean, it just seems like he's on a rant. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Maybe real not realizing the American people just fired him. But these firings, um, and again, he's putting people that he that he believes will be loyal to him, 
Um, but he's creating a lot of concern about national security. You know, it's hard to know. The worst case scenario, of course, is that Trump says, to heck with all of it, I'm going to nuke somebody. You know, I mean, I don't know if that's possible. I, there may be enough checks and balances in place. Uh, there may be enough um, conversation within the military apparatus, uh, people in key positions who know how volatile and and uh, and unstable this genius is. Uh, so there, there may be enough checks and balance to prevent that from happening, but so much other damage. Um, you know, I I've always I've never been a fan of, of of sending troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. So part of me says, okay bringing troops home from there. That doesn't bug me. But a lot of folks are bugged by that for some very intelligent reasons. Of more serious concern is what might happen if Trump does decide to move forward with some kind of action in Iran. I mean, that could not only create a very um, unstable and uh, potentially a, a, war, a war scenario that goes much broader than just Iran, it could also make it really difficult for Biden to kick up the... Um, the U.S. nuclear, U.S.-Iran nuclear, uh, nuclear control agreement again. So, hey, this quote from Adam Schiff, um, he's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He says, quote, we're going to have to be very vigilant in the next two months for abuse of the pardon power, awarding of contracts to friends and family and destruction of records, as well as policy decisions to box in the incoming administration. So there's some things there I hadn't thought about. Okay, so... Yeah, we all know that President Trump has pardoned some of his friends uh, who um, <laughs> seem to be very guilty of some very serious crimes. And so what might he do with his pardon power between now and January 20th? And might he even find a way to pardon himself uh, pro proactively? I don't know. These are all very good questions. Uh, awarding of contracts to friends and family, that point that Schiff made... Well, he's certainly done that. And I, I mean, I, I think that's a big part of what's happening in the, in, in the Arctic right now, in, Atla in Alaska. I mean, I, I know that, you know, George, uh, going back to George Bush, Bush wanted, uh, George W. Bush wanted to allow drilling in the Arctic. But fortunately, he ran into congressional roadblocks back then. And uh, yet in 2017, the Congress under Republican control at that point, with Donald Trump as president, authorized drilling in the uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And that, again, is the largest tract of unspoiled land in the U.S. Um, huge, massive herds of migrating caribou, uh, of waterfowl. And, of course, you've got your cute, lovable polar bears and foxes as well, and maybe the occasional wolverine. Um, so <laughs> the bottom line is, uh, you know, there's two things here. One, do you really want to risk spoiling that wilderness? Apparently some who want to make money on it do. And two, we can't afford to continue to expand oil and gas production. But it looks like Trump is planning to do exactly that. I mean, right, right now, the C Congress authorizing it is one thing. What hadn't happened yet was the issuing of leases to allow drilling. And what Trump is trying to do now is rush that along so that those leases are in place before January 20th, before Biden officially becomes president. 
So, you know, and it looks like uh, the time frame is such that it looks like it might, that, 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 that allowing of oil and gas drilling might not, might be, might be approved just literally just before January 20th. So, you know, and the problem is, of course, that uh, leases, once they're given, it may be difficult to pull them back. And, um, you know, Biden may be under a lot of pressure not to do that because don't, re- don't forget, folks, it isn't just the Republican Party that's bought and paid for by the oil and gas industry. It, to a lesser extent, but there is certainly oil and gas money in the Democratic Party as well. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens if Trump accomplishes these leases, what will happen? What will happen? What will, what will Biden's response be? I mean, I'd like to believe, even, even if it's difficult to claw back those leases, I, I, I'm going to guess there's a way to do it. Will he have the intestinal fortitude to do that? I mean, I know Biden has said that, number one, first thing, out of the box, we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, okay? But this would be something concrete he could do. Something, you know, the, the again, I, I, how, how do you measure the, the damage that Donald Trump has done? I mean, 100 environmental regulations alone have been repealed or rolled back under the Trump administration. And some of them were strong. Some of them were eh, milk toast. But here we have, you know, going out the door, trying to do more and more, more and more damage. Uh, you know, there, there's so many ways in which uh, we, we need to be really vigilant. You know, one thing I'll say is Trump has kind of gone, other than going out for, you know, golfing outings twice a week, he's kind of locked himself up. Uh, he hasn't been out a lot. He's been tweeting a little bit as nonsensically as ever and oftentimes um, chastised and flagged by Twitter. But um, he bears watching and we need to be... Uh, very suspicious of um, any of these last-minute changes. I mean, who, go, who goes around firing staff after you've lost an election? Who does that? You know, I'm sorry, not a stable genius. So, again, we need to be paying attention. We need to be watching this closely. And I will say this, in addition to whatever Joe Biden might accomplish with, uh, with, on, on climate change, there's one campaign promise he absolutely needs to keep. And he made it to us face-to-face on several occasions here in Iowa. He's, he stated he's against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Well, if you're against the Dakota Access Pipeline, now is the time to weigh in on the proposed doubling of that, of that oil. Uh, you can get that done. It hasn't started yet. The infrastructure changes have, have not been made. Uh, that pipeline should not only not be allowed to double, it should be closed down. So... Again, big task list, task list ahead for President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris. And again, we'll see what else happens between now and the 20th of January as Trump leaves his trail of debris going out the door. Hey, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us and we're going to talk food as we always do. The question today is, where's the beef? And the answer is, it depends on which Betty Crocker you ask. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. 
They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Farm, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Breakfast seven days a week, lunch and supper, actually, lunch and supper seven days a week, breakfast on the weekends, I'll get that right. They're also open through their takeout program as well. And of course, this time of the year, think about gift cards. If you buy a $50 gift card, you get $10 extra. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Okay, um, thanks uh, thanks again for tuning in to today's program, folks. And uh, I'd like to welcome Kathy Burns to the program. She's the director of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome. Thank you. Betty Crocker. <laughs> you know... <laughs> I remember the, where's the beef? You know, it, that's, that's been a long time expression in the U.S., right? Where's the beef? That wasn't a Betty Crocker no, expression. But, but, but her yeah. beef was front and center. And Betty, I remember that from my mom's book, my mm-hmm. mom's cookbook. Mm-hmm. Betty Crocker was right there. That's the first thing you came to was beef. Right, right. Um, Has Betty changed her tune? <laughs> well, um, what do you know about the person Betty Crocker? Not a lot. Okay. <laughs> I know a little bit more about Julia Child thanks to the movie. Well, the difference is Julia Child was a real person. Betty Crocker was not. She oh. was the persona that ruined behind, my day. <laughs> I know, behind the brand ah. that is now General Mills. And um, the, frankly, Betty Crocker came into being in 1924 as part of a, a radio cooking show out of Minneapolis and or Minnesota, somewhere in Minnesota. And... Um, really established, quote, herself as uh, a force in 1950 when the first cookbook called Betty Crocker's Cookbook was published. Mm. I did not know these things. Yeah. So, but Betty Crocker may have changed her dietary preferences somewhat in the last century? It is amazing. Um, I, I, I love food recipes, everything about the culinary world. And I've gotten really interested lately in the progression of food, the hierarchy of food, the hierarchy of proteins in the American diet. And I did a little study of Betty Crocker cookbooks to see what what changes have been happening recently. So little uh, quiz for you now. Oh, gosh. Pop quiz, and I'm not even prepared. Okay. We talked about it a little bit at breakfast, but um, right, I, looked I, it, I, I ignored it you because I was paying attention to the uh, Danish pastry. That's right. <laughs> What's the most popular meat in America right now? I'm going to guess it's still beef. Okay. In 2018, uh, chicken surpassed beef as the most popular 
meat. That doesn't surprise me either. And yeah, uh, yeah. and so um, it's a uh, I, I don't know the where's the beef campaign held held true for a long time. Right, and then the pork producers came up with the other white meat. Right, as their way of trying to gain some market share. What's the next question? Well, um, <laughs> if you think about. You know, a recommended serving size for meat is four ounces, according to, you know, whoever the dietary gurus are in, in the U.S. right now. Uh, I think most people's average serving of meat is at least six ounces. So how many servings of chicken, if it's, it's a six-ounce serving, would you guess the average American has per year? How many, uh, how many, serving, how many six-ounce servings of chicken mm-hmm. does an average American have in a year? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to guess... Um, uh, 365 days in a year. Yeah, I'm going to guess uh, 50. 285. Oh, wow. That's how much chicken America is eating per capita. That It, it actually doesn't mean really? that the average person oh, okay. is eating 280. But some people are really eating their sure. more than their fair share. And more than six ounces at a time, I'll bet. Right, right. So when our chickens find out about this, they're going to be really unhappy. <laughs> they're going to be terrified. Wow, okay. We, we eat more of their eggs than we do well, of their we do, flesh. yeah. But. But, um, of, with beef and veal is second now. And, beef uh, and veal. Beef Tied and for veal. Second. Well, veal is a kind oh, of beef. Okay. Yes, and it so is. They're, they're wrapped in together. That's about 150 six ounce servings a year, average across and America. And this includes the fact, even, even factoring in all the people who have gone vegan or vegetarian. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And um, pork at about. Uh, 146 ounce servings a year per person, and lamb, and we have the our favorite grower of lamb, Lee Tesdell, arriving here pretty soon with some <laughs> with some manure for our garden. But we eat we eat lamb, uh, but the average American only eats about two and a half six ounce servings per year, so hardly anybody's wow. eating lamb. Now, huh. I'll, we, I'll bet that's up from what it was even, but still, it's not a lot. A lot of people think yeah. we're vegetarian, Ed, because we grow a lot of vegetables. And right. we post photos of our food, of our meals, and it's often mostly vegetables or all vegetables. But no, we're omnivores, and uh, we eat that. But I was so curious about the the placement of beef in mm. cookbooks and in the American diet that I just did a little research of Betty Crocker cookbooks. Where, where, does, where does squirrel fall in that list? Oh, funny you should ask, because <laughs> because the first cookbook po- published by General Mills under the name Betty Crocker, 1950, uh, was very post-World War II and very much uh, referring to what people had on hand. Now, they didn't list meat first like they have in more recent years as the, the first recipe batch that you come on to. They went alphabetically, which was not a good idea, and they changed that pretty quickly. But your mother... Um, no, your mother doesn't have this cookbook. She has so the Aardvark next publication. Aardvark was the first thing on the, uh, well, on the food book. Well, uh, one of the largest uh, meat uh, products that they talk about was, was rabbit. Oh. Rabbit. Had a lot of recipes for rabbit because a lot of people were eating rabbit. That's what they had available. And brains. There, there was brains it also okay. listed as one of the meat products. and I don't uh, Also think, the favorite meat of zombies. <laughs> I don't think brains are listed in any of the Betty Crocker right, cookbooks right. now. No. So all alphabetical, but when meat was listed, uh, yes, beef was the number one, number one meat in that first cookbook, and that trend has continued. Um, Your mother has the 1956 version of the Betty Crocker cookbook. That had to be one of the earlier versions. And uh, Mm -hmm. and it yes yeah that was the second 
second mm. edition, I believe. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, it, it then was um, arranged more, uh, it was arranged very similar to the first one with the alphabetical, uh, but less less focus on rabbit and brains as meat products. Yeah. Um, disappointing. Your mom and I both own <laughs> the, the 1985 version called the New and Revised Edition, and that cookbook specifically meat is the first tab of recipes when you're going through your ring-bound recipe book and okay. beef is first pork is next and then it goes on down to the lowly bean as a protein source and so the hierarchy <laughs> the hierarchy is very specific and yeah. then um, the bean lobby needs to get with it i know <laughs> yeah where's the dried bean lobby out there huh? well you know pork had the other white meat and right. now they think now they think they have imagined the possibilities i don't know what the bean lobbies um mm. you know slogans gonna be but it might not be pretty yeah. Well, no. It's, it's, they're going to have to overcome some uh, some uh, mis misconceptions. But I don't um, think it will start with beans, beans. The no, it won't start with that. Yeah. So, um, but, but the bottom line is, even though chicken is now the top meat of choice for Americans, uh, beef still remains the top, the the front of the the front of the story. Uh, recipe item in Betty Crocker's cookbook. Not with their most recent edition. Oh, okay. No, and this is uh, the exciting news. In 2016, Betty Crocker, or General Mills, published <laughs> Everything You Need to Know to Cook from Scratch, which is interesting because the very first cookbook that was published presumed people didn't know a lot of the cooking methods, and now mm. it's back to presuming people don't know cooking methods because cooking from scratch is only recently again coming into vogue, uh, you know, as, as opposed to eating out as, as often as you can. So um, the newest cookbook is, uh, is focusing more on the progression of food through your day. It starts mm. with breakfasts and appetizers and then beverages. Meat is about halfway through. Oh. However, halfway through in the meat category, it's still... Still going with beef as the number, the first meat listed, and they're so they're a little behind the times on that. Yeah, well, interesting stuff. Um, I see you've been studying cookbooks again. I, I ran across an, a very old cookbook, well, a book about food from 1956, a fellow yeah. in Wisconsin, and it uh, really got my interest going again in kind of cooking then versus cooking now, and mm. I love that stuff. Kathy, thank you for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Hey, thanks again to all of our guests today. Kathy, of course, uh, Joe Henry, uh, Dr. Mark Allendary, and thanks to the Fallon Forum production team of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. You know, please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can follow the Fallon, Fallon Forum on Facebook. And you can also sign up for my weekly blog at ed at fallonforum.com. You help us continue to provide that uh, radio and online uh, platform that's a counterpoint to the big corporations who own most of the public airways. And they don't want to hear, they don't want Americans to hear a lot of what we're talking about. Again, uh, thanks to the stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. I hope you'll tune in next week as well. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host, saying thanks for joining us on the Fallon Forum.